Well, good morning. Glad to see you here. I know you are so awake. Welcome to Time Change Weekend. So I just love that because people are just going to be a little bit more into it. And before we get into today, I just want to thank you. Thank you for being awesome church last weekend. Trunk or treat for those of you, 70 different trunks, 3,000 people approximately came through, 100 brand new families. So we just thank God, you know, for just being the church. Thank you for taking that time. Just amazing, absolutely amazing. And I'm also excited because then uh, if you are a Christian, you're also home on Halloween night. And what a chance to be able to connect and to meet and to celebrate your neighbors and, you know, shine a light to your neighborhood as well. Just thanks for being the church. Uh, as we jump in today, uh, as been already been said, this is our last week of our God and Sexuality series. It is PG-13. Hope to not say that again for a very long time, uh, but uh, hopefully it's been a good series. Uh, I'm not going to be sad that it's done, but uh, um, hopefully it's been encouraging and equipping as we go through this. In fact, I was talking to Kelly Armstrong, who's our campus pastor, and, and we both agreed that we could have probably renamed this series and just could have called it Grace and Truth. You know, that's, that's been the emphasis from the absolute beginning. But I just want to be honest. It'd be so much easier if we were followers of Jesus or a church that was just about grace only. It'd be so easy. Like, we love you no matter what. You never have to change anything in your life. I never have to change anything in my life. Uh, you're going to be unconditionally loved uh, from now uh, and forever. Oh, if you're doing things that are harming you and other people, that's okay. Grace, 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 grace. It'd be easy to be a church and to be individuals like that. Conversely, it would be easy to be individuals and a church that's all about the truth. And there are a lot of churches out there. This is what the Bible says. Just do it. What's wrong with you? You have feelings? Doesn't matter. Just do what the Bible says. You know, just follow Jesus. This is what his word says. And that's all. Oh, you want to walk through some hardships in your life? I'm sorry. Let me just tell you some scripture and you'll be just fine. And so it'd be so much easier just to do hellfire and brimstone kind of sermons. This is what it's about. But Jesus, John 1:14, he came with this idea of grace and truth, right? We have to live in this tension between. This is the picture of the cross. The cross is grace that you and I don't deserve what Jesus did for us that he went to the cross even while we were still sinners, even while we were still his enemies, he still died for us. What a picture of grace. But he had to go to the cross because of the truth. The truth is our sins is what he died for. That there's a recognition that there is sin and that he actually came to the cross for our sins. And if there wasn't sin, then he would not have to go to the cross for our sins. So this is the picture of grace and truth. So these last four weeks, we've been trying to talk about this idea of God and sexuality based on Hopefully you felt the perception and the reality of grace and truth. Now, with that being said, three weeks ago, we looked at how God wired and created sex and sexuality. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, today is your message. Okay, I want to give you a heads up. Uh, It's not incredibly pleasant, but it's good. It's going to be challenging, but it could be life-giving. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is a great time to just kick back and watch your neighbor squirm a little bit. So uh, I warned you that this is going to kind of hit today because there's some things as followers of Christ that we we have to work on that we've got to surrender to Jesus when it comes to his grace and truth in our life. So if you're a follower of Jesus, then you know that God clearly defines his design for gender, sex, and sexuality. So even though we might feel differently, even though we might think differently, We are surrendering to what he has to say. So that's why we talked a few weeks ago about what does he say about sex and what does he say about marriage? 
Then two weeks ago, we talked about homosexuality. Last week, we talked about transgenderism and intersex. And once again, if you missed any part of those conversations, this is a unique sermon series where one really does build on the other. And so if something that I say today ruffles the feathers a little bit, that may not be a bad thing, but at least go back and say, well, what did he mention last week or what was mentioned two weeks ago or three weeks ago because it's kind of a collection of all of those things you know, together. Our theme verse has kind of come from Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 19, verse four. It says, haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus says, they record from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. There's a physical connection through sex as well as emotional and spiritual that takes place in the bonds of marriage. And so last week, I decided to ask you to ask me some questions. So what are some questions that you have that you'd like us to answer? And uh, thank you for your two and a half pages you know, of questions that you gave. And so I am not gonna be able to answer them, but here's what I, I'm going to be able to do is, is over the course of the next two weeks, we're gonna put a separate video together and no, we are not putting that online because online is terrible, you know, when it comes to people cutting and slicing and that. But we are gonna send it to your life groups and to different ones of you. And if you don't get something within the next two weeks and you like some answers, let me know. Because we've got people who ask things like, do I attend an LGBTQ plus wedding? Uh, do I use people's preferred pronouns? Uh, what if somebody's been married, you know, for a long time, you know, to a same-sex couple and, and, and God's asking them to change some of those things? I'm like, oh, good one. You know, so... Great questions. Thank you, you know, for all of those. Really, really appreciate it um, with that. But here's what I can tell you. Here's what I can tell you. Every single question that you had, well, uh, almost every single one, had, 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 had a question underneath it. There was a theme that every question had, and this was the theme. How do we respond to people with differing thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors? That, that was the question. You might have said it in different ways, but that's the question. And I wonder if you know the answer. Grace and truth. All right, when I was a kid, actually, there was a popular four-letter acronym in the early 90s that got very, very popular, and it was WWJD. And I know it got probably over-commercialized. It got kind of cheesy at some point, but I think it still remains true. What would Jesus do? See, the response to a lot of the questions that we have is not, what do I think? It's not what do I believe. It's not what you think, you feel, or you believe. But if you're a follower of Jesus, that means you've surrendered to Jesus' leadership and lordship in your life. And we've got to ask the question, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? How would Jesus respond to whatever this may be? Because believe it or not, there's not direct answers to some of the questions that you're asking. You can't open up Second Opinions chapter 1, verse 7 and find a direct answer to your question. For those of you guys who didn't know, that's not actually a real book in the Bible. So I just don't want to be you know, hit with that as well. So what would Jesus do? So with that being in mind, there are two groups of people who believe differently, uh, who behave differently, may act differently than what we've actually talked about over the last three weeks. And the two groups are first, those who say they're followers of Jesus, but say, no, no, that's not actually what the Bible has to say. I don't believe that or I choose not to believe that. And then there are those who've never followed Jesus or choose not to follow Jesus who also believe, act, or live differently. And so as followers of Christ, since most of the New Testament is written to Christians, again, 
who fit one of those two categories, how are we supposed to respond? These are God's words, not mine. And because I believe it's so important, I need you to see, we're gonna look at a lot of scripture from God himself for those who are followers of Christ and let that penetrate our hearts and minds. Because the reality is those who follow Jesus are to be treated like those in our immediate family. This is a common term for what the church is supposed to look like. Church is not supposed to be a place you just attend. It's a people group you belong to. And the Bible describes the way we relate to each other most frequently is as brothers and sisters in Christ with God as our father. And so there is a different way. If you think about it as parents, uh, you may love or even discipline your kids a certain way because they're part of your family, right? Now, if Johnny across the street is not behaving according to your family rules and you spank Johnny, you might be in prison and I'll come visit you, I promise. Uh, But that's not how we're supposed to behave or act in a different way towards those outside the family versus those inside the family. So how are we supposed to respond to brothers and sisters in Christ who believe differently than what we've talked about these last two weeks. Okay, in Galatians chapter six, it gives us the framework in verse one. It says, dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly, notice those these words, should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself, share each other's burdens, and in this way you obey the law of Christ. So can we care about one another in grace to say, hey, I see this in you, knowing that I've got issues in my life too that I wanna bring to your attention. And because of my love for you, I'm gonna do it with grace. I'm gonna do it with humility. I'm gonna do it in a respectful way as I would hope somebody would do in my life. Now, maybe one of the questions is, if you're a follower of Jesus is do you have people in your life that you've actually given permission to to actually bring some loving rebuke, loving correction, you know, loving help. And I love it says, carry each other's burdens. Do you understand the burdens that it's referring to in the Bible is when other people are sinning, that you're not supposed to say, hey, here's the truth, good luck. You know, no, no, I'm gonna help carry this with you. We're gonna go on a journey together. I know that whatever area of this is in your life that's hard, I'm going to go on this path with you. We're gonna carry this together. That's a beautiful picture of what a brother or sister in Christ would do out of love for one another. And so with that being said, I just want to remind you as brothers and sisters in Christ how God defines sexual immorality. God defines sexual immorality as the willingness to engage in an expression of gender and sexuality that is outside God's will and his design. And oftentimes we always like to look at, especially for a follower of Christ, at what other people are doing, going through or struggling. And as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we fail to look in the mirror of the areas that we have been affected by our own sexual brokenness or by the ramifications of other people's sexual brokenness on our family line and how that affects us. So make sure, I wanna make sure I broaden this, and I hope you've heard this over these last few weeks, that the Bible speaks of sexual immorality as things like, and it's not just limited to, but I'm just gonna throw, throw out, out a few of them. Sex before marriage, sex with multiple partners, lust that leads to masturbation, pornography, adultery, homosexuality, sex with animals or objects, sex with minors or kids, molestation, rape, and all other kinds of sexual abuse, and this is the beginning of the list. 
anything outside God's design. And if we look in the mirror, we can say, yeah, either guilty at one point in our lives or we're suffering the ramifications of that effect in our lives. So when we come across a fellow follower of Jesus, a brother or sister in Christ, be gentle and humble. Okay, that's our first, that's the premise. Because I now need to give you some background. The Apostle Paul uh, wrote a letters, and most of the letters are written to churches that he started in the Roman world. And there are a lot of fellow followers of Christ who say, you know what? We are just more sexually enlightened today. We, we understand things differently. The Bible doesn't mean what you think it means, and there's a lot of those questions that you actually submitted that we'll kind of walk through directly. But I wanna make sure I give you some context to what actually ha- is happening and what is normal in Rome or the Roman culture to which Paul is writing. Specifically, one of those cities is the city of Corinth. The way I can describe it to you is think um, ancient Las Vegas. You know, whatever happens is okay, Prostitution is legal. Sexual expression uh, is taking place on a rampant basis. In the Roman culture, get this, if you were a man in the Roman culture and you slept with anyone that was not your wife who was also a Roman citizen, you would be committing adultery and it was a heinous crime. But if you were a man in the Roman culture and you wanted to sleep with a slave, you wanted to sleep with somebody who was not a Roman citizen, you could freely do so and you still were not committing adultery with your spouse. So it was actually, okay, thumbs up, we understand you have needs, so go ahead and express them in those ways, just don't do it with a fellow Roman citizen. This is common knowledge back then. Then specifically, and to give you an idea, one third of Corinth at this time was probably slaves, is what they kind of guess. So there's a lot of people in that category. Then you have the temple Aphrodite that has, this, has her home in Corinth as well, and that meant temple prostitution, which was also legal and encouraged because it was part of the worship of Aphrodite. So Paul comes to Corinth, he plants a church, and now is writing not just one, but two letters back to this church. You got these brothels taking place regularly. Now, homosexuality also was common in that culture. It wasn't a foreign concept. If you want to study Roman history, 14 of the 15 Roman emperors in Rome practiced bisexual or homosexual behaviors. Uh, just, just look at history. In fact, at the very time that Paul writes one of the letters that we are going to read today in 64 to 68 AD, a guy by the name of Nero was emperor of Rome at the time. Now, Nero was, uh, uh, let's just say, probably one of the worst emperors And you could see his expression of this as well. He castrated a boy named Sporus, and then he married him with a full ceremony, brought him to the palace with great procession, and made the boy his wife. Then later on, the emperor lived with another man, and Nero was declared to be the other man's wife. So this is the Roman leader of the entire empire during the time of Paul's writing. So for just a second, if you're a Christian who's living in Corinth, to which Paul is writing, what do you think you might be struggling with as a follower of Christ? Sexuality, sexual expression, following God's sexual ethic. There's a reason why Paul addresses sex and sexuality more in First and Second Corinthians than any of the other letters, because he knows the people and the questions that they have. So with that as the background, Paul needs to ramp up because he's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ, and he needs to be a little bit more forceful 
with what's taking place, then I think you'll understand why. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says these words. I can hardly believe, Paul says, the report about the sexual immorality that's among you, something that not even pagans do. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. So there's some incestual stuff that's going on. You are so proud of yourselves. And he's saying he's talking to the church as a whole, followers of Christ. But you should be mourning in sorrow and shame, and you should remove this man from your fellowship. Even though I am not with you in person, I am with you in the spirit. And as though I were there, I have already passed judgment on this man in the name of the Lord Jesus. You must call a meeting of the church. I will be present with you in spirit, and so will the power of the Lord Jesus. Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved to the day that the Lord returns. So Paul, even in his harshness, which we're gonna explain why in just a second, is still doing it on behalf of the guy. He's saying he's, he's hoping. We've already had this conversation. Guys, you know what's right and wrong. We've addressed this, but here's the issue. And so if it gets to the point we need to kind of kick him out of our fellowship, it's for the sake of actually him coming back to the Lord. That's his motivation. It says, you're boasting. This is the key. It's not that they're sinning. Okay, all of us in here can look in the mirror and be like, guilty. This week, this morning, yesterday, today, this afternoon, we all sin, and there's a continuous of sin that's taking place in our lives, even though we're viewed by the covering of what Christ has done. The difference is this church is proudly celebrating the fact that this is taking place. Your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you will be like the fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us, so let us celebrate the festival, not with old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. It says, when I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. So he's not saying people who sin, but he's saying indulging. And again, he's talking to Christians and how you're relating to one another, and they took it the wrong direction. And he says this, but I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin. And then he broadens it. Greedy, cheat people, worship idols. You'd have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be believer, yet indulges in sexual sin. And he goes further. Is greedy, worships idols, abusive, drunkard, or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. Just like you would do in your family. It's not somebody else's job to discipline kids in your household. It's our job to discipline our own. Always out of love. But this has been heightened now because the church, believers in Jesus Christ, has said... What you think is a sin, Paul, isn't really a sin. And we're gonna celebrate. We're proud of actually what's taking place as part of the family of God. And he says, no, this isn't right. This isn't what should be taking place. And I know this sounds really harsh, but understand this. The distinction lies between those who acknowledge their sins, seek help from Jesus, his Holy Spirit, and the church community to overcome them versus those who embrace sin or deny that it is even sin, talking to Christians. So that's the challenge. 
And notice that he's talking about sexual morality based on what we just saw as an example, but also greedy or drunkards or whatever it may be, that somebody says, you know what, I, I, I'm not gonna confess, I'm not gonna admit, I'm not gonna say that that is a sin at all. So there are churches today that are spouting about saying, hey, based on what we talked about these last three weeks, that it's not sin. I'm like, now you're in trouble. So now you've crossed the line. And this is personally painful for me because I've gone to college with a couple different pastors of mine who are now, based on the way the culture is going, they're saying, no, 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 that's not really what it is. We are completely fine with all different types of sexual expression or orientation as followers of Jesus Christ. And it's there that I have to draw the line and say, no, you're wrong. In fact, I cannot partner with you as a church. And I said, I'm gonna love you to the very end, but I cannot agree or go along with you. And that's hard because I want to lean more on the grace side. But I have to be a person of truth because I didn't write it. And I'm trying to follow what God actually has to say. And I know you have people as well in your life. And there's a process. Loving, grace, bringing truth and love, and then getting harsher as we go along. In fact, the next chapter, Paul says again to Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter nine, verse, 6, verse 9, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, I guess that must be none of us. None of us are gonna go to heaven. I guess that's what it says. Don't fool yourself. Those who indulge, ah, there's the key. Those who are okay with, that agree with, that say there's nothing wrong with and live their life by, that's what that word indulge means, in sexual sin, and it's not just sexual sin, worship idols, commit adultery, male prostitutes. Now you know why he would say male prostitutes because he's talking about the temple of Aphrodite or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards again, or abusive, cheap people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on, some of you were once like that, but you need to be reminded, in Jesus, you were cleansed, you're made holy, which means set apart, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God, who sets us free from sin and death. That's the encouragement that we have in him. See, as followers of Jesus Christ, will we choose to live by our flesh or live by the Holy Spirit? Will we choose to live by our flesh? And this is what this was the illustration was last week. Remember, God puts these boundaries in our lives, these rules, and I know we're talking about sex and sexuality, for our own benefit. But Dan, I want to live by my flesh. I feel and I think and I'm tempted by things out here and so we have a tendency to go out here, and all of us do, but as soon as we say this is the way that God wants us to live, we're actually going against actually what God says, even though he tells us, no, 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 just confess your sins, come back to me, get back behind the fence, because if by going outside the fence, it actually hurts your relationship with me and with other people. I actually love you enough to let you know that I want you behind the fence, so live your life by the Spirit and you'll find yourself more at peace with me, more at peace with other people, and being able to live the life I've created to live versus the one that actually starts out feeling really good, feeling very affirming, but actually leads to death and leads to heartache. So Paul says it this way in, in, in Galatians chapter five. Here's our two choices. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. This is the results of those things. If I'm led by my flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, Outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. He says, etc. And again, it's not that we've not engaged in that even as followers of Christ. 
Where do we live? A lot of times you might find people say, you're just a hypocrite. I'm like, yes, if being a hypocrite means I have to be perfect in my faith. There's nobody who lives that way. I'm covered by Jesus Christ, and I'm trying to live the faith that God has called me to live. Thank you for his grace and his mercies that are new every morning. I'm in this struggle. I'm in this battle with you. Anyone living that's the constant state of being, that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he goes on and says, but the Holy Spirit, this is the product of the Holy Spirit, of the fruit in our lives is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to the cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. That's powerful. But it's hard. The guy who wrote the most, the most of the New Testament, the guy who was probably the greatest Christian who ever lived, the guy who wrote the, the first and second Corinthians, Paul, he also writes, dang it, why is it that I keep doing the things I don't want to do? And the things that I do want to do, I don't do them. Why am I wrestling with this flesh of mine? And he goes, when I'm in that battle, he goes, I find myself doing the things I don't want to do, the things I should do, I don't do. And then he cries out, who will save me from this body of death? And then he says in Romans 7, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's that submitting to him every morning, just saying, God, thank you for seeing me, for affirming me, for helping me on this journey. Teach me your will and teach me your ways. See, those who are not followers, before I get to that part, so the first group of people are those who are followers of Jesus, but say, you know what? I don't believe, I don't think, I don't want to believe, I don't want to behave in a certain way that Jesus is actually calling us to live. For me, that's harder. That's harder to interact with. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to bring grace, but also to bring truth. And sometimes, if you're part of the family, you do bring a little bit more truth, don't you? because of your love for one another. And so now what about the second group of people? Are those who are not followers of Jesus? Are those to be treated with love, with respect, and a willingness to share the message of Jesus Christ through word and deed? Here's our problem. Is that we try to take the same attitudes, actions, and behaviors, those in the church, and we take it outside the church. So we take our NVI 9000, and you'll know that joke from a couple weeks ago with, uh, with uh, Kelly, and we take this thing, and we take the truth, and we read these passages of scripture that are meant for Christians, talking to Christians, and we try to apply it to non-Christians, and we just whack away. I mean, we're just swinging away at people. Don't you know the Bible says this, and people are getting smacked upside the head, and they're kind of delirious, and they look at you. Have you ever been smacked by somebody you didn't know? You don't like that person, do you? No matter what they have to tell you, you're like, I want you away from me right now because you're a freak, you're a weirdo, and I can't stand you because all you're doing is smacking me with what you believe is the truth. Okay, let me put it in other context. As a follower of Christ, what if somebody came up to you and smacked you upside the head and said, you know, the Quran says this. Why aren't you following this? You know, Buddha says this. Why aren't you following this? You know, Joseph Smith said this, why aren't you following this? You would be looking at them as if they were crazy. Like maybe because I'm not Muslim, maybe because I am not a Buddhist, maybe because I am not a Mormon, that could be one of the reasons. And yet we think that people should listen to God's word 
when they've never signed up to be a part of God's family. It's a completely different approach. And as followers of Christ, we've got to do better. It's different when you're talking to those in the family versus those who are not in the family. So here's a picture I want to give to you. Everyone not connected to the family of God, they're orphans. They're orphans. Probably one of the best ways to say it. Our goal as former orphans is to introduce them to other brothers and sisters in Christ and to a new father through Jesus Christ. Our goal is not to clean up the orphan or to make the orphan behave a certain way because the father's love isn't based on what the orphan has or hasn't done, looks or doesn't look like at this point. That's not our job. The father's love is based on the orphan's life as image bearers of the father. So the father, most often through us former orphans, extend an invitation to be part of this family. And we tell them the good news. It's supposed to be good news of Jesus Christ that if you come and be a part of the family, you're gonna be looked after. You're gonna be taught. You're gonna be cared for. You're gonna be loved. And yes, if you're part of the family in love, you will be disciplined by our father. That's our agreement to be in the family. See, as an orphan, we don't get to come and dictate terms. We don't get to come and say, well, I'm gonna come with this. No, no, no. We have to admit that God loves us more and he wants us to invite us into the family to provide us love and protection and help. And you and I as former orphans get to be the representatives of that family. So how do we do that? How do we do that to a world that doesn't believe the same, that continues to head in an opposite direction of what we read and what we understand of the Bible, what we read and understand of Jesus Christ? Number one, we need to commit ourselves to living a life that represents Jesus, specifically that reflects him. If we bear the name of the person we follow, do we represent Jesus? In 1 John 2, 6, it says, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. In January, the middle of January and in the early parts of July, we're gonna have a guy by the name of Brad Nelson who's gonna come and speak at our church. He spoke the week before Easter. And he is an expert in what took place in Roman culture and in Israel culture over the generations. And what he has mentioned to me in source after source What's become abundantly clear is that the manner in which Christians conducted their sexual lives marked them out as separate from the Greco-Roman sex-soaked culture around them. Does that sound familiar today? As Christianity gained influence, the sexual climate of the Greco world began to change. Sexual morality was then limited. It didn't used to be this way. It's not like we've all of a sudden become enlightened today. But sexual immorality morality became limited to the context of marriage between a man and a woman. There was no more visiting brothels, no more visiting prostitutes, no more liaisons with slaves, no more visiting the prostitutes of the temple of Aphrodite, no more participating in religious festivals and holidays involving sex, no more homosexual connections and acts. And when a mistake was made, there was confession and repentance and a rejoicing in coming back. You see, long before the church had any power in an empire, the clarity of the message was displayed by our lifestyle. Paul made it clear that sexual purity was an essential and powerful gospel outreach because it was different than what the world was saying needed to happen. The reason I say this is because I wonder, why is it in the church today 
that the divorce rate is just as high in the church as outside the church? Why is it that adultery is just as high in the church as outside the church? Why is it that the pornography viewing is just as high in the church as outside the church? Why is it the couples who sleep together before they get married is just as high in the church as outside the church? Who are we to say, look at us, guys. Look to see how we're reflecting Christ when we aren't reflecting Jesus Christ. If we really want the message to communicate, we need to be a church that lives and individuals who live as brothers and sisters in Christ more like Jesus. Now saying that, let me be clear. God loves everyone who sins. God loves divorced people, especially if you were the one who caused the divorce. And have you repented? Have you walked through a stage of that to say, look, I screwed up. God is ready to forgive. We as a church, we want a journey because we're all broken people at different points. So we have things like divorce care. So we have things like pure desire if you're struggling with pornography. So we have things like Abaddon if you've ever had an abortion to be like, you're seen, you are loved, you are forgiven, you are welcome. It's called Valley Real Life. We're gonna go on this grace-filled journey together. As followers of Jesus, though, we've gotta look in the mirror and just say, does our sexual ethic line up with Jesus's because that speaks powerfully to a culture that continues to go further and further away from the things of God. Secondly, maintain devotion to prayer. In other words, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. How often are we praying for those who are orphans? How often do we pray for them by name? Because here's the reality. Christians, truth on the table. What we pray about is what we care about. Jesus, we're gonna be like Jesus, cared greatly for those farthest from him. And here's the other encouragement. What you start praying about, you also start caring about. So if we find ourselves doing that, are we regularly praying for those who are not yet connected to Jesus? It begins to change our hearts and God works in ways that we can't. Number three, can we build relationships with those far from God? Uh, Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. A lot of times our non-Christian friends see followers of Christ as hating sinners. In other words, do you see people more for their political beliefs, persuasion, the things that you are against, and do you find yourself angry and hate-filled toward the person? Or do you find yourself still wanting to love, to connect, to serve, to come alongside Can we build relationships with those far from God? I just wanna remind you, we are not called to curse the darkness. We are called to be a light in the darkness, to shine a light for him. Fourthly, be be prepared then when the opportunity arises to respond with grace and truth. 1 Peter 3.15 says, instead you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life and as someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But how do we do this? with a gentle and respectful way. Maybe my favorite verse in the Bible concerning this is Colossians 4, verse five and six. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of truth. It's not what it says, but that's what we think the world needs. 
They need the truth. That's not, he could have put truth in there and he doesn't. When it comes to non-Christians, may your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Salt enhances flavor. It brings life so that you may know how to answer everyone when they ask. Now notice what's not written here. I wanna make sure that we're, we walk into this gently and understand this. Cause and effect. I've actually believed at one time that if I pray the right things and if I live the right way and if I share in the right way and I love the right way, then I'm gonna get a right response. I'm gonna get a loving response. And then we get really frustrated because the cause and effect truth is you might do all of these things well and still be spit upon. You still may be canceled. You still may be called names. How do I know that? Because Jesus was called those names. The apostle Paul was called those names. And so even if you do all the things right, you need to understand that you still might be cast aside. But it should never stop us from turning the other cheek and continuing to bring grace and truth and love into people's life. Not a pleasant morning, is it? I'm the one that had to actually give it. So just so you know. So followers of Christ, here's the crux of the matter, even in our culture. So many people, as we end up this, as we close this series, have made sexuality an identity issue. That's what it's been. That didn't happen until about the 1970s. Before that, in the free love movement, the hippie days, all that kind of stuff, sex, doesn't matter with who or how often, it was something that you did. But then all of a sudden, sex became who I am. And so the biggest challenge for followers of Christ or not followers of Christ is, Dan, if I do this, you're asking me to deny who I am. I am not, but God is. Let me say it clearly. In Luke 9, 23, whoever wants to be my disciple, Jesus says, must deny themselves and pick up their cross daily and follow me. All of us are asked to deny ourselves. All of us have temptations and we want to live consistently outside the boundaries of God. We are drawn to that. All of us have to make a daily decision to say, it's not going to be about me. I have to deny myself, even if I think, even if I believe, even if I feel differently, I'm gonna deny myself to follow Jesus. In fact, specifically, a guy by the name of Chad Moore said this, Christianity isn't about self-expression. It's not about self-fulfillment. It's about self-denial and Christ-fulfillment. This is what Christianity is about. And we can either choose our identity or we can receive our identity in Christ, knowing that we're gonna wrestle with this. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life where we have to deny ourselves because it's a better life and a harder life as we follow him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for today, an opportunity just for us to really wrestle, be challenged by some of these things as it relates to our connection with you. So Father, for all of us who are called followers of Christ in this room, I pray, Father, that you would just penetrate deep. My words would completely disappear, but your words would just remain. And we will continue to go on this journey. Thank you that you love us, that your mercies are new every morning, that even the days that we're not faithful, that you remain faithful. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
In just a second, I wanna give you an opportunity to receive Christ, to come back to him, because his way is true, his way is better. But we have to answer the question, what is my identity? What does it really look like in Christ? Because apart from Christ, you're gonna make up your own identity. You're gonna have the world tell you what your identity should or should not be. You're gonna have others, your parents, your friends, your work partners say, this is who you have to be to be, you fill in the blank, successful, to be you know, chosen, to be the one who's headed in the right direction. But in Christ, here's what we have to hold on to. What is our identity in Christ? Christ says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You say, Christ, I am a new creation. You say, I'm a child of God and a member of God's family. You say, I'm a temple for the Holy Spirit. You say, I am a saint who still sins. That's the reality. Uh, you say, I'm a friend of God. You say, I am irreplaceably significant. You say, I am free and find victory over sin. You say, I am saved. You say, I am forgiven. You say, I am loved. You say, I am righteous. Will you stand with me as we sing this song together?